Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's really great to see you all tonight. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners on the land on which we meet tonight. Um, and I will briefly introduce tonight's panel. Uh, we're here in this exhibition, and tonight's panel is, is taking place in Celine Condorelli's um, work called Bo Bo Bo, and this will set the backdrop. Um, this work is all based on, on fr friendships and people's relationship um, through life and work. Um, to start, I would like to invite Shannon Goodwin, who is the organizer of uh, tonight's panel. Uh, Shannon is the first convener of All Conference. All Conference um, is a network of artist-run initiatives and experimental spaces. And if you haven't done so yet, I really invite you to um, check All Conference website, which has um, an extensive library um, and research on this topic. Shannon is also the director of Bus Projects. Um, thank you for uh, organizing tonight's panel, and please make Shannon welcome. Okay, so I've got to get a comfortable distance from the mic, so uh, I'm sure someone will wink at me if I'm being too um, quiet. Um, but thanks everyone for coming. It's a real pleasure. This is, um, in some senses, uh, uh, one of all conferences' aims is really to initiate discussions of this nature. Um, and this is really our first chance to kind of stretch our legs and, 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 and test out this kind of um, way of an, uh, initiating this dialogue. We do this in some ways through conversations amongst the network, we um, encourage publishing. We have a library on our website, which I've obviously kind of mentioned is, um, is, uh, is building over time. But we don't want to let that be kind of a dead kind of conversation. We want to enliven it with current discussions about timely issues um, that are relevant beyond the network. And I guess that's the whole point of doing something uh, like this, is that it has broader um, benefits, um, as a lot of things do when people get together to work. And that's in some ways, the backdrop to the, to the discussion tonight, in a way, is people working together, forms of solidarity, um, uh, uh, how people are kind of doing this in different ways. Um, and so I'm just going to give some, I guess, um, biographical background to our speakers around the table. Um, firstly, uh, Tarika um, Bolatanithi was going to join us tonight. She's wrangling babies, though. So um, Lucy McIntosh is filling the breach, which is great. Um, so uh, forgive me as I go through. I just don't want to necessarily confuse anyone's sort of uh, particulars, um, so I'm just going to read a little bit here um, as we go around. Um, so before we sort of um, uh, move on from Tarika's participation in tonight, though, I just wanted to point you to Tarika's excellent practice and also her community projects, such as the Pacific Photo Book Project and the Community Reading Room, which foster life-affirming spaces for creative communities of colour. Um, really important um, practitioner, um, and her initiatives are well worth checking out. Um, uh, and we'll sort of touch on them a little bit later, just as part of the discussion to lead us um, on to a, a certain points. Um, so Lucy um, is a visual artist and photographer um, uh, and curator. Based in Melbourne, Australia, Lucy has a deep commitment to the independent arts, communi um, arts community and has volunteered her time on a number of nonprofit and community arts projects. She's currently a director at Blindside, an independent artist-run space in the heart of Melbourne. Um, Colleen Chen, hello. Uh, is an advocate and researcher on emerging workplace relations issues. Um, as a co-founder of Interns Australia and president of the Young Workers Centre, she's driven public awareness on the prevalence of unpaid work amongst young people and has called for law reform to protect interns in the workplace. Um, something we can all appreciate, especially in the arts, of course. 
Um, Colleen speaks regularly at universities, community organisations and industry groups on the importance of developing quality pathways to employment. As she has presented her findings, um, she has presented her findings to state and federal policymakers, as well as international, as well as the International Labour Organisation in Geneva. In recognition for her ongoing advocacy, Colleen has been uh, named the 2017 Law Student of the Year um, for the Law Institute of Victoria. Uh, but Otham, of course, and who, who uh, really needs any introduction, I had to take an aggressive red pen to your biography here so we didn't end up reading it for the rest of the night, so forgive me. <laughs> oh, no, you know, the long one is the, 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 long one is the short one. Uh, so Ben Otham is a lecturer in media um, and communications at Monash University School of Media, Film and Journalism. Uh, Ben's primary research interests, uh, research interest is the public policy of culture in Australia, primarily at a federal level. Uh, he has published peer-reviewed journal articles, conference papers, creative works, and edited book chapters. Uh, his monograph, When the Goalposts Move, Patronage, Power, and Resistance in the Australian Cultural Policy, 2013-16, to 16, uh, was published by Currency House in 2016. And you can, of course, jump on there and purchase a copy, which is well worth reading. Um, ben also works uh, extensively in the popular media as a journalist and essayist. Um, ben is convened a federal, uh, uh, has covered federal politics uh, for, de for a decade for the national... Um, as national affairs correspondent at New Matilda, and he's a regular contri contributor to, jour um, to journals such as Crikey, Overland, Imagine, and Sydney Review of Books. Um, and Sarah Gore, hello, hello, down the end, um, uh, is a reader, writer, creative facilitator, and cultural producer. Um, Sarah is the current general manager at Um Projects and has worked in, art, in the arts for the past decade, holding leadership positions uh, at Queensland Poetry Festival, Queensland Writers' Centre, the National Young Writers' Festival, um, and Sarah's creative nonfiction. Uh, has been published in various literary journals, including Lifted Brow and Stilts. So perhaps join me in welcoming my, my actual guests. <laughs> Thanks. So look, I think, look, to give a bit of a departure point um, and also to kind of lay a little bit of kind of compost down for, the, for some things to grow out of, um, I thought I'd uh, give some departure points for the panel um, uh, and I wanted to preface the discussion a little bit with some ideas that led me towards this topic. So bear with me. Um, in this discussion, we'll weave through uh, interrelating topics, including the position of artists in the broader workforce, particularly the impacts of volunteerism, casualization, downward pressure on wages, uh, the growth of the on-demand economy, and reflect on types of investments that artists make as they speculate on their careers. We'll do this through listening to uh, the personal perspectives of our panel members who've each done important work in their own multifarious uh, practices as art workers, artists, academics, creative facilitators, cultural producers, uh, community organisers, advocates and researchers. With the help of the audience, of course, who's also quite uh, rich in terms of their, their knowledge and perspectives, some of our members are here tonight as well, uh, which is great, all conference members. Um, uh, we will reflect on the unique set of pressures that often go unnoticed because artists work, uh, perhaps for the general public, is still considered a luxury commodity or auxiliary activity done for pleasure. This belies the significant socio-political impact, knowledge-generating capacity, change-making potential of creative people. This discussion is being had, obviously, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a quite an ugly moment uh, politically, um, globally. Resurgence, uh, resurgent pride in colonial narratives, the public displays of racism, misogyny, homophobia, and xenophobia um, are all too um, uh, present at the moment. Um, this is obviously not a new experience for, um, for people of colour in the LGBTQI plus community, um, but it, it reminds us again uh, just that the work we do to build community and solidarity in the arts at interpersonal levels, at, at local and uh, even at global levels, uh, can have real impacts. 
So this topic of speculation as it relates to artists' work and careers provides a conduit to talking about broader socio-political circumstances. Um, and uh, speculation is more conventionally understood as involving a trading a financial instrument at high risk with the expectation of significant returns. Um, and uh, uh, so in the arts, this metaphor can be applied to loading university debt, uh, buying materials, equipment, hiring studio spaces, paying for exhibitions, uh, starting initiatives of your own, um, working for low or no pay, uh, or, or working two or three other jobs uh, at low pay as well. So as director at Bus Projects, obviously that's been something that I've experienced as an artist, run, artist going um, into uh, arts administration and how to balance my practice with that. But as a, running now a small-scale artist-run organisation, um, the speculation economy reminds us that Bus Projects continues to exist because artists choose to invest in us financially and through their labour. So I thought maybe in a sense it's, it's good to kind of open up maybe with, a, with responses from the, from the panel around this, this topic. I guess this is one of those things where there's no real right answer or particular, uh, particularly dictatorial perspective on this, but just to see if there are any resonances with that term of the, the speculation economy um, from each of the panels. And maybe rather than choose people in some sort of order, I just go around the table a little bit and maybe start with Ben, seeing his nearest to me. Um, I think you can just grab the mic and rock check, on. Check, check, one, two. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Janet. Thank you for your lovely introduction. Uh, thank you to everyone who's here. Uh, yes, well, I mean, I think we do live uh, in an attention economy or a speculation economy, and I think that that actually fundamentally affects the way that artists make work, and it affects the cultural labour market. So the cultural economists who've done a bit of work on this kind of stuff, they, they talk about cultural labour as a kind of tournament and I think that's a powerful metaphor for understanding why artists are so poor. Uh, and the one of the reasons is that there's always more entrance into the tournament, right? So there's always a, a, a constant flow of entrance into the cultural labour market of people who want to make art, want to be involved in cultural industries, and many of them are prepared to work either very cheaply or indeed for free. And of course, this drives down the wages across the board in a very, very brutal sense of supply and demand. Um, and the other sort of aspect of that is that um, the, the way that culture works, I think, is a, a kind of dichotomy. You know, you, we often have uh, superstars. I mean, we all know about, you know, stars. There are star artists, just as there are superstar performers, just as... Indeed, there are even rock star professors in, in the universities now, I'm told. Uh, and so there's this tendency of, of an attention or a speculation economy tends to focus attention and people's speculative energies on a very few lucky winners of the tournament. And, and it is quite as brutal as a tournament in that people get knocked out progressively round by round and it becomes harder and harder for mid-career artists to keep working because they can't make a living, they can't pay the rent, they're not able to, you know, maintain their practice, they're not able to keep a roof over their family's heads, and so people drop out. Um, and the lucky winners, um, and luck is definitely a big part of it, are the ones that reap those rewards. And I think this actually goes beyond simply a sort of brutal economics of supply and demand. It, it actually 
also, I think, affects the way many artists make work. If you think about the reason why so many artists tend to plough a furrow in a particular practice and then keep working in that practice or that form for most of their career, for some, I'm sure it's because you know, that's their practice, they want to deepen it and they want to develop it over time. But for many, I think, one of the reasons is that there are big risks in moving away from that thing that they're known to do uh, because uh, there's, there's likely to be penalties. Essentially, they're starting a whole new career if they, they go off on a different form or a different sort of style. And so I actually think that the, uh, the attention economy or the speculation kind of aspect of it actually affects not just the labour market but indeed the form of art itself and I, and, I, and I worry about that because I think that you know not only are there impacts on individuals who are just trying to make art um, but it's also a symptom I think of a broader problem within our society which is that we're becoming increasingly unequal, we're becoming a winner-takes-all society and it's having all sorts of implications across all sorts of different aspects of our life. Galindo, I wondered if that this term has any resonances for you from your perspective, um, uh, which obviously has a, a slightly different stance, but you obviously branch over into that as well. For sure. Um, I definitely agree with Ben that um, it's a winner-takes-all kind of system and that's what makes young workers and young artists particularly vulnerable, uh, given that uh, youth is quite a valuable period in our lives and uh, it doesn't last forever. Um, and when you look at the other end of the labour market where um, people are reporting stories about age discrimination from as early as 45, um, productive years for workers, you know, really um, not that long in the greater scheme of our, um, how long we're living these days. Um, I guess for me, speculation is really about that carrot um, that sort of is elusively dangling in front of many of us, um, regardless what our dreams are. And um, just to pull a few numbers out from, I guess, publications that I've become aware of in the past few years, uh, the Foundation of Young Australians um, guesstimated that uh, it takes, on average, 4.7 years now for a young person leaving higher education to obtain full-time employment. And I think that question is perhaps not realistic even um, in the art sector, considering that full-time employment is far and few in between. So I wonder how that would... Um, work for the cultural industries. Um, but the other thing is, um, when I, uh, in my personal research um, on labour markets, look at um, the workforce in general, um, it's not uncommon for a young person to be um, not in employment, education or training for, uh, for um, a period of time in their, um, so between when they're 18 and 24. In fact, according to the OECD, 70% um, of young people in Australia in that age bracket experience a period where they're completely disengaged from the labour market or um, from formal education. So I guess the comfort is that don't freak out if that happens. Um, but the problem is that um, one in five Australians, young Australians actually um, are in that state for 12 months or more. And um, when that happens, they become long-term unemployed. They're in the social welfare system and, um, you know, there are critics of the system as to how well it works. Um, and it's not only dispiriting, but you know, you experience loss of skills and techniques or whatever you've learned while you're at uni, you might be, become even more disengaged. Um, so that's why I think um, the issue around 
the years where we're speculating um, about whether or not a particular career path or profession will work out for us is quite a crucial question because um, it does have, um, you know, it does bear on the rest of our lives. And um, if we're not careful, um, it, it does make certain groups of people very vulnerable um, if they don't have an existing social sec um, security network or social network to support them. And I think, um, Lucy, you're one of those very special artist people who we might be even talking about here. So in that sense, you have a, a very, you have a personal perspective that of course I, I share to some degree, um, but I wondered if you could talk from that perspective a little bit about this topic or this title and whether it resonates with you at all. Yeah, I guess it does resonate a lot and I probably will jump back to Ben's point about um, superstars and about who, who are not those superstars, I guess. And I guess in a lot of ways, like science, you know, you have to fail quite a lot. And that is really important because otherwise other people can't succeed. And in the arts, you don't get uh, compensated for that failure, you don't get compensated for that research. Um, and I guess, you know, in the speculative years, it would probably discourage a lot of that kind of knowledge production that happens, you know, that testing that is quite safe to do at university, but maybe not so safe to do afterwards. Um, and then I would wonder what the implications are for you know, the broader knowledge that's produced by a community of artists when you think about maybe Melbourne, Sydney, Australia, you know, the Asia-Pacific region, whatever community we want to situate ourselves in. And then I would also think about you know, who gets access to even go to university and whose voices are heard and whose aren't heard. And so I think that you know, speculating on all of that, there is still only a very small, you know, I'm very lucky that I could attend university, could go to art school, could now speculate on what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, but there's still a lot of other amazing creators in Australia who don't have access to that and somehow they don't get to be artists and so I guess yeah that space is something that I think is something really important to start unpicking. And I think well then perhaps we can progress on because we can return to some of these points I think there's yeah. some already some interesting things just just how long those speculative years in fact do last in the arts <laughs> in fact there's a, a kind of a whole lifelong uh, uh, habit of that existing so I mean but perhaps we can pass the mic to Sarah as well and um, ask, I mean, your experience in, in terms of coming from, or having that experience in the literary world as well, I wonder how this maybe um, resonates with you and obviously um, uh, we can touch base on how one fits into this, but, but what's your experience been on this? Well, yeah. what Lucy just mentioned is actually what first resonated with me, that if being an artist or an arts worker is increasingly a speculative proposition, then who is able to take the risk, and it's those of us who have privilege. And that we're gonna lose, if, if that is increasingly the case, we're gonna lose a lot of voices and a lot of art. And I mean, Ben touched on that too, in that increasing inequality. And it's something that um, Anne is starting to do a lot more work with Indigenous artists, and it's something that I've already noticed in you know, the discrepancy between those who attended university and so can talk about art and art practice using certain language and those who didn't. Um, and so I think, yes, yeah, speculation, speculation in the arts and it can't be divorced from the question of privilege. Um, and the other thing that I thought a lot on about the arts and about the speculation economy, sorry, and probably 
yeah, through a background working in literary organisations and I work primarily with writers who are supposed to be good communicators, I suppose. So I think that if, <laughs> if the arts is seen, you know, I mean, you mentioned this, Shannon, if it's seen as a luxury or a non-essential, then why do we, why will people invest in it? And while everyone here may obviously see that as an obvious question and why we invest in arts, that is not self-evident for the broader Australian population. And so I think there's, this is where the arts world, we have to look at how we can advocate better for ourselves, how we can tell people why, why they need to invest in us and, and also more on an individual level, how, why we need to invest in ourselves. Um, uh, yeah, so I think that's another important question. And obviously that question of advocacy, as you know, Shannon, is one that I'm very interested in. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, well, look, that, in a sense, gives us, a, again, a good grounding to maybe move into a little bit more detail, maybe, on some of those conditions of labour that, that we sort of touched on throughout all of those speakers, in a way. Um, but the way that I thought to tease out some of these things was in conversation points. So, in some ways, I'm going to maybe gather, I've gathered a little quote here or something and then ask maybe a particular panel member to discuss that and then of course others can chime in uh, and supplement their, their answers. But I thought in a way because um, of uh, especially some of Colleen's research uh, and work, um, I thought maybe we could start in a sense with, with an article that, that you co-authored um, and I just dragged two little points out of that that might be useful building on some of those points um, that you already uh, laid out. So. Uh, in an article um, which uh, is sort of headed uh, Visual Artists and Creative Labour, which you co-authored with Kate McNeil in 2005, uh, you noted that, and again we've talked about this, but it's really nice to see it in a, in a really fierce quote, uh, creative labour is largely considered to be precarious labour, self-reliant, risk-bearing, non-unionised, self-exploiting, self always on flexible employed labour, and that uh, in, in studies of economic circumstances of visual artists, uh, suggest that few are able to leverage either their intellectual property, which is often held out as a kind of a, uh, a really key part of how people might make income in the arts, or their labour, um, or their labour to produce living wages. So I'm just going to repeat that because I interjected. Studies um, of the economic circumstances of visual artists suggest that few are able to leverage either their intellectual property or their labour so to produce living wages. The low remuneration received by visual artists throughout their creative practice is most often supplemented through employment in other areas. And so in that way, that this again links us to this broader um, circumstance of, of workers more, more generally. Um, and I thought maybe it was a good chance to reflect in a little more depth on some of the more the specific um, organisations you've been involved with, particularly the um, Interns Australia and Young Workers Centre. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on your work with those organisations relating to precarity and work. Sure. Thanks, Shannon. Um, so I will do the plugs for Interns Australia and Young Workers Centre in a little bit. Uh, but just to go back on, um, I was thinking about intellectual property today after receiving your brief, and uh, I was thinking about the pointy end, you know, how they're doing. And is, is intellectual property really um, the answer to all our woes? And um, my conclusion is probably not. <laughs> uh, because you know, when I'm thinking about even um, a medium that's recognized, say dance, um, if you don't record your choreography properly, um, it's, you, know, you can't lay claim to it. Um, and there, with new mediums that are trying to push the boundaries uh, of what is considered art, it's you're going the other way, basically, from protection. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two is, um, I was thinking about all the, um, 
the, the IP infringement um, campaigns uh, uh, lodged against major fashion brands where the similarities are so, so clear to even the layperson that, um, you know, it's really triggered a fair bit of backlash um, in the community and yet I suppose the, the section of segment of the community that actually cares about this is perhaps not significant enough for the companies to actually do anything. And in fact, um, there's a great article about why um, big brands are gearing, steering um, more and more into logos and plastering all their logos across all their products. And one author actually has um, a belief that it's because design is inherently very hard to protect. So even for large brands, um, it's easier for them to protect a trademark um, than to say this pattern of clothing or whatnot is uniquely ours. Um, Christian Louboutin tried to patent the red sole underneath their shoes, which they thought was quite unique to their brand, and yet um, even that was thrown out by the courts. So I guess there's a real question mark over whether or not intellectual property is really going to um, bring home the bacon. Um, so that's that. Um, as for my work with Interns Australia and Young Workers Centre, it's really more about looking at uh, the portfolio careers that young workers and young artists have as they navigate their way through the world of work. And um, the, the, the figures are staggering, really. Um, Interns Australia, we are a collective, strictly speaking. We've been around for almost four years now and we've been formed uh, by a group of university students who have variously had interning experiences, um, some positive, some negative, and we realised that there's not really a platform for interns to get together and share their experiences and um, find ways towards creating um, meaningful um, work experience placements that um, hopefully are paid, but also are actually substantive in terms of helping them learn and build contacts and not just doing grunt work. So um, we did a major survey uh, in 2015 um, as a response to the Productivity Commission inquiry. And um, we found that on average, the intern placements performed were three months in length. And uh, it was heavily skewed towards the creative industries, although it's um, really creeping into all industries, even um, professional industries like law, engineering, uh, finance, and accounting. And um, when we very roughly um, calculated the numbers, we concluded that um, on average, when a young person does an unpaid internship, if it were calculated at the basic minimum wage, they would be foregoing about $6,000 of wages. And so that was... Uh, important for us because we finally had a number to peg our advocacy onto um, rather than just say, oh, here's a, you know, a few weeks here, a few weeks there. It's actually, um, when you add up all, those, all that time, it's not insignificant. Um, and given that with the Turnbull government's PATH intern program where um, students are being forced to do unpaid internships uh, as a condition for welfare payments, uh, it's going to put an already questionable system on steroids. And uh, we're concerned because, you know, the, on the other hand, it's these unpaid interns, they're doing, if they're doing real work, does that mean that they are displacing paid workers? Um, there's a real question around how 
productive the system will be um, when you take it to the nth degree. So um, Intense Australia shares a lot of synergy with Young Worker Centre. So the Young Worker Centre is a community legal centre launched last year. We offer free um, legal advice for young workers under the age of 30, regardless of which industry they work in. Um, it's a one-stop shop, but it's, a, it's also a once and only shop. So the idea is that um, when you enter the workplace, we understand it's complicated and we're here to help you. But ultimately, to empower yourself and, and to empower each other, you really ought to join a union or um, engage with your co-workers and resolve a problem together. So um, the Young Workers Centre has done some research as well as part of our, our community engagement. And last year we released a report um, based on a survey of over a thousand young workers that um, one in five of them are being underpaid. And um, it's, it's not surprising at all because they work in industries like retail, hospitality, and so on and so forth, where underpayment is rife and cash in hand payment is rife. So um, we're in the process of trying to find strategies to um, address these issues, but as you can imagine, um, it's, uh, it's quite complex and it requires everyone to get on board. So. Well, I think, you know, building on that, obviously I can, um, I think it's good to, to kind of link to Ben and some of his um, work, especially in some of the journalistic work that obviously gets gets um, gets my blood quite hot uh, to read, um, especially in the current climate. But I thought, you know, kind of teasing on from maybe some of those points, um, because you write about many issues that are relevant to artists, especially in these precarious circumstances. But in recent times, perhaps some of the, the, the two that are insidiously in the background, um, uh, but, but very important to say things like attacks on penalty rates, um, which obviously have recently, you, you wrote about, you know, over, the, over a number of years when I went back to look at, obviously I found articles going back, you know, two years, then two years, and now of course we've had some action on that, which I think is, is uh, something to be commented on, but also this recent welfare crackdown as well. And I just wanted to uh, quote from an article where you quoted from uh, Human Services Minister Alan Trudge, uh, where, Tudge, sorry. <laughs> maybe I was just like Trudge, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe that's just feeling funny. Um, uh, so Trudge was strident in his language, I'm quoting here, Trudge was strident in his language on, uh, in his language on welfare last year, complaining that Centrelink was too lenient on job seekers, quoting him in this article. Um, uh, we must face the reality that in our desire to be generous and caring society, we may have, we may have reached a point where we have taken our good intentions too far. Um, you know, in a sense, in someone yourself who's involved in some ways a, a, a number of endangered professions, you know, the journalists, the essayists, the kind of, you know, these kind of fake news purveyors now, uh, an academic, you know, this kind of much blind expert. I wondered if you could comment a little bit on how some of these factors that you've written about and maybe more broadly commenting on some of the things that Colleen talked about um, may Im impact these, uh, these precarious workers that we've been talking about a little bit. Um, yeah, well... It's interesting, isn't it? Alan Tudge um, claiming that Centrelink was too generous. I mean, I, to give him his due, he has addressed that issue. He's fundamentally made Centrelink less generous, hasn't he? So that's one politician who's got something done. Um, you know, I spent about six months in the first half of this year investigating the government's online compliance initiative. That's the so-called robo-debt. Okay, this was this program that... Alan Tudge and the boffins at the Department of Human Services put together uh, that would automatically match people's income 
to their benefits and send them out a nice friendly letter if it felt that they were getting more money than they were entitled to. You know, and the misery that this robo-debt program caused people. You couldn't leave the country when you got a debt like that? Was that uh, you couldn't leave the country, you were cut off benefits um, in order to try and address the often fictitious debt claim that had been raised against you by the department. You had to call the Centrelink hotline, which was, of course, you know, often three, four hours um, on hold, or you could try your luck at a Centrelink physical office where you are sometimes told to go to a computer and do it online or call the hotline from the Centrelink office. Uh, you know, there were, I mean, it's, it's, you, can, you can laugh about it, but there, we know of at least two people that have committed suicide after being given some of these robo-debt notices. Um, you know, the misery that this program caused was almost incalculable, like it just boggles the mind. And, uh, you know, and, and looking at the way the government approached it, it was fundamentally about punishing people on welfare. It was punishing them because uh, in the mind of people like Alan Tudge, a fellow who um, has never been on benefits to my knowledge, um, his previous job before politics was at the Boston Consulting Group, um, you know, if, if you're on benefits, it's your fault, basically. It's because you're not smart enough or perhaps you haven't worked hard enough to get yourself a job. And so I think we've seen a, a fundamental shift in the way that we uh, treat people who are on benefits in this country, which is basically to blame them um, for their predicament. And, and um, to link that back to where we're at in terms of talking about cultural labour, um, the link there is that, of course, this kind of surveillance, this kind of punitive treatment of people uh, is fundamentally in the interests of capital. Okay, so it's in the interest of the people who have lots of money, the people who control uh, the various industries where we might want to get work. And those industries uh, have as their interest uh, a flexible workforce, a workforce which is non-unionised, a workforce which is not organised, and a workforce which can't organise and mobilise to demand higher wages. Uh, and, of course... Um, that's easy enough to see in the cultural industries, which are almost sort of by definition composed of, of artists. I mean, you know, fancy trying to unionise writers and artists. I mean, it's like herding cats, right? Like, uh, trust me, I've tried. Uh, it's really hard, you know, because people are like, oh, I'm not going to join the union. I mean, look, it's all... Uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm an artist, you know. Like, I'm really creative and I'm just going to take my chances. Um, and that's the attitude of a lot of people, and of course this is part of why it's so easy for large multinationals to pay people peanuts. Um, and, and so the, there's a whole bunch of levels on which the sort of um, balance, if you like, or the scales in our society between the interests of capital and the interests of labour have been fundamentally unbalanced in the last couple of decades. And we're now in a situation where um, it's, there's fewer and fewer people in unions, like uh, union membership in the private sector is about 15% in Australia, um, and where the industrial legislation in this country, the Fair Work Act, is quite unbalanced towards employers. 
Um, and as a result of that, you know, we're seeing a situation where real wages in this country are falling, okay? So the share of the economy that's going to workers is actually lower than it's been for decades, and the share of the economy going to profits is higher than it's been in decades. And so that's the big picture issue, and that's what we're fighting against down here at the sort of, at the coalface. Very good. And I think, well, I mean, you know, one uh, lifts one's spirits a little bit by, by talking a little bit about how, in this next section, about strategies for solidarity, the ways people are responding to this. Um, so in spite of these uh, associated financial burdens, which obviously are, are broader workplace problems and then very specific art-related problems which have developed, um, uh, uh, you know, within the sector, um, with these associated financial burdens, the resilience of artists is uh, made apparent time and time again through, again, you know, this is their own worst enemy in a way, through their creative DIY entrepreneurial strategies um, uh, and their propensity for bringing people together, even though there's an individualistic streak, of course. But they're often bringing people together in partnerships and collaborations and in informal organisations or cooperatives. Um, and happily, there are many examples in this room, of course, of people who, who do this in their practices uh, and through their own organisations, which they initiate to foster certain elements of practice and for certain uh, elements of our community. Um, so another conversation point which I thought was important was the kind of place that these things happen. It relates to some of the, the conversations that have been had about the affordability of cities. Obviously, you know, the kind of the government has, as well as had opinions on, on, on how you can afford houses. But um, I thought in this sense, we can, we can touch a little bit on a, on a, on a note from Fit Murray in her report, uh, her talking point, a, a snapshot of contemporary visual arts from 2013 and 14, uh, where she points out that, you know, Melbourne, we're talking about Melbourne here, has long been recognized for its lively communities of artist-led spaces and projects. Um, but the city is now ranked the fourth most expensive in the world. Obviously, this is a few years ago now. Um, and Sydney th uh, ranked uh, third. So, so it seems inevitable that artists are priced out of these central locations. She goes on to talk about some solutions that have been put forward by council and others. But I thought, Lucy, in a, in a way, we've talked about this in the past in terms of your first-hand experience at Blind, so which you just mentioned has been 15 years in the, in the heart of the city, housed within a building which houses artists, a kind of community of very diverse kinds of craftspeople and creative folk and funky kind of things and, and other galleries as well. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your personal experience uh, you know, how you, and how you dealt with, uh, you know, maintaining a kind of a non-commercial artist-focused space in the heart of the city, <laughs> you know, that we'd all well, hope would be great. Yeah, thing. rents are always rising. Um, I guess the building's a really big part of our identity as a space. We've always been there. Um, and so as much as rents keep going up, we're kind of holding on, holding on, holding on. Um, and I think something that's really important, not just the building and the space is that being in the city means that um, we're visible to a wider community that exists outside everyone in this room outside the arts and I think that that is really important for the arts as well. Um, in terms of rent, um, yeah so the Nicholas building has always kind of been a building full of creative people whether it's a milliner or an architect or an artist or um, and so we've actually recently formed a group, a tenants group, um, out of reaction to raising rents. Um, but now I guess more, I guess we're spending a bit of time strategizing now on how best to go about it. We're all in different tenancies and so it's not easy and no one has very much time. <laughs> 
And do you think, we've, we've talked in the, in the past about how, I mean, in a sense, it's one of the much touted kind of walking routes in the city is to walk mm. up to Blindside, to walk around the Nicholas mm. Building and to come back down and pop off to West Base and pop off to TCB and, and you know, tease out these small uh, organisations. Um, the next question is sort of one that maybe um, both you and, and then maybe Sarah as well, given your experience in, we just were talking about Queensland and the, these ways that these places, these cities can sort of foster or, or kind of push people away. And the next sort of quote maybe is a continuation from that, which is a quote by um, uh, University of Melbourne, University of Melbourne academic Kate Shaw, who wrote an article, Independent Creative Subcultures and Why They Matter, remarking that, quote, uh, the idea of the creative city as urban renewal strategy creates a paradox. Um, obviously, Melbourne is famous for, for as a creative city. And continue the quote. Um, With the success of such strategies, measured by um, decreasing vacancy rates and increasing property values, um, the primordial soup at the base of all culture activity dries up. When low and no profit creative activities are displaced from the city, the evolutionary pool shrinks. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit and perhaps I get your comment, Sarah, maybe uh, in terms of how you think these kind of city creative milieus are important for the arts? Well, because of literature, it's a city of literature, right? As yeah, well. it yeah. is. It is. It is. Um, an interesting. I'll, I'll, I've worked for many years with This Is Not Art Festival and the National Young Writers Festival in Newcastle, um, and after for, so for many years, Newcastle was on an economic downturn, and that kind of you'd walk through the CBD, and it was just boarded up shops. Um, and Marcus Westbury created an initiative called Renew Newcastle, um, where he. I guess it was an attempt to bring alive in the city through cultural spaces, but out perhaps not quite outside of the the capitalist framework, but at least playing around with it a little bit. To renew Newcastle um, was able to form kind of a relationship between artists, um, landowners, and of the people who are owning these empty spaces and the council. Um, and basically, they completely enlivened the city through um, allowing artists into these spaces, and the artists didn't have to pay rent, essentially, because these spaces were left empty. Um, the artists often fixed up the spaces and renewed them. Um, and so Newcastle was really, you know, the fabric of the city changed quite dramatically with that. I know it attracted a lot of people to the city, um, as well as retained some young people. Um, and Renew Newcastle is now called Renew Australia and it's got initiatives in Townsville and I think maybe even in the Docklands, I'm not positive, but kind of all over Australia. So for me, that was an example where I could see the way that that kind of grassroots creativity um, changes the way people interact with the city and that cannot be replicated when you only have commercial outlets. Um, and I think that in Melbourne, like, you know, I mean, we're about to potentially lose West Space in the CBD. Gertrude has moved from, I mean, it wasn't in the CBD, but very centrally in Collingwood out to Preston. How old building just got knocked down in Flinders Lane. So. There you go. And it, I think that um, it's a kind of, I forget the expression, but like Melbourne wants to tout itself as this creative city in the city of literature. It's what Fifth was saying, um, but unless we can actually support that in a genuine way, which is not through large institutions, but through the people who create culture, um, then it's gonna change the fabric of the city. There's also some seats at the front here if anyone needs to take <laughs> a load off. 
Anyway, so I thought, you know, we may keep, keep speaking, um, Sarah, but because we can, it actually links to some recent developments that Unprojects has initiated and, and it allows us to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but one of the conversation points that we were going to open up and tease out with um, Tarika when she was here uh, was related to, uh, it's a conversation point, to a 2015 interview she gave on socially engaged um, art practice in the Oceania uh, where she discusses her Pacific photo book project. Um, and it's just really interesting to kind of reflect on that and again it just helps one kind of go away and, and, and you know, look more at her practice. Um, but the, photo, uh, the Pacific Photo Book Project, this is a quote from her in an interview, uh, is an example of a project where it, that was only open to young uh, people of Pacific Island heritage to learn photographic skills and publishing from more established artists of Pacific Island heritage. The intention was to create a culturally safe space for young people to learn, dialogue, and tell their stories their way in a nurturing environment where their voices and ways of knowing were respected and privileged. Um, although we were going to talk specifically about her two uh, community projects, uh, the, photo, the Pacific Photo Book um, Project and the Community Reading Room, um, there were examples of her aim to create spaces that foreground knowledge and lived experience of First Nations and people of colour, um, certainly a topic that in a sense warrants its own subsequent panel um, and that's certainly something we'll initiate. Um, but I thought it gives us a good opportunity to, to talk about Unprojects' call, current call for an indig um, Indigenous Australian editor for its uh, our magazine in 2018. And I thought, Sarah, it gives us an opportunity to talk about that as a, a, a long-term kind of aim and perhaps a, a question around how that editorial role is part of this strategy, a sure. sort of empowering strategy. Yeah, so um, increasing our dialogue and engagement with Indigenous and First Peoples um, contemporary art has been a long-term goal of UN. UN's been around for about 14 years. Um, it's been in the strategic plans for a long time, um, but it's never been enacted for a couple of reasons, and probably the major reason being that up until last year, um, UN was underfunded and was so mostly run by a volunteer board. So it's hard when it's hard to put in long-term strategies in place in a, in a kind of thoughtful manner when you're run by um, volunteers, which is you know, pervasive through the arts, of course. Um, so I came on last year um, and had some extra funding, which again is only short-term. So, um, But one of the first things that I initiated was starting to talk with Indigenous practitioners um, because we didn't want our engagement with Indigenous art to be tokenistic or um, sh yeah, kind of short term. So the first thing we did was have um, recruit Indigenous board members and indi mem Indigenous members of our editorial committee so that it wasn't um, white fellas making decisions about, about dialogue around Indigenous art, but that as a collective of you know, white people and Indigenous people who were making decisions. Um, and the second reason that one, well, one of the first initiatives is the edit, editor position. Um, I mean, and projects, for those who don't know, we're, we essentially are, we publish arts writing. Um, and so because publishing is what we do, the editor position is central to curating what we're talking about. We have an annually rotating editor, so each year we, we publish two editions a year, and each year we have a new editor, which is a strategy to keep and exciting and fresh and, and relevant to the community that it it has dialogue with and with it's it just it was a no-brainer to if we want to increase indigenous content to let it be curated by an indigenous person um, so yeah so we're currently calling for indigenous editor and sub-editor and at first we thought well, should we give them boundaries you know they have to you know publish 
X percent of Indigenous artists, but we decided that the point isn't to dictate to the editor, we've never dictated before to editors, what kind of um, content they need to publish. So um, the idea is that it's a, yeah, a kind of a top-down, I guess, initiative. Yeah. And it's, uh, we were a little bit worried that we'd get a little bit of flack for it, but um, so far it's, everyone's been really supportive of it, so that's great. Yeah, I can't wait to see the issues that come out. And so in a way we, we lead towards, perhaps back towards a more conversational point, um, but again it's, uh, with the linkage to a quote. And I thought, um, so in this final uh, point of discussion, I wanted to, to read a quote by Ben. Uh, um, and open it up to the speakers. <laughs> um, uh, so in his essay, uh, Cultural Policy in Australia, published in More Than Luck, Ideas Australia Needs Now. Now, this is a while ago, so it, it's a good point to update. You know, how is this, you know, how have we moved on? And, uh, you know, I suspect not much. So ordinary working artists are the forgotten people of the Australia's, of, of people of Australia's cultural policy debate. Their average income is well below median Australian wages, yet individual creators and artists are the lifeblood of Australian culture. When new funding is created, it should be directed towards individuals and small companies, not large institutions. Now, obviously, in recent times, you know, updating on that, um, in a sense, your, your position paper, in a sense, talks about the disruption to funding, and, and so there's been, there's been these big fracture points in terms of, of, of some of this funding-related conversation, but I thought it was a good point of reflection to um, pass around to the group in a way, because it relates in some way to the institutions that, that we're speaking in today as well, and also how, what, what perhaps is an update, from, especially from Penn, is um, how, that, how that's going. You know, have we made strides? <laughs> um, uh... I'm sorry to say the news is bad. Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, I actually co-wrote that with Marcus um, all those years ago, and I guess what's what, what probably really sticks out for me, looking at it seven years later, is how little has changed. It's as bad as ever, if not worse. And um, still, in 2017, the funding landscape is dominated by major institutions. There's an extreme reluctance to fund artists to be artists. You know, there's a, there's a tiny amount of funding goes to fellowships, goes to new work, goes to project grants in the scheme of things. Um, I haven't done the, the maths on it for a few years, but the last time I did it, it was 1% of all funding went to artists to make work, uh, which is a bizarre uh, mismatch of priorities, if you ask me. Um, after all, artists are the actual, not just the workforce, but the, the, the key sources of the creativity, of the innovation, of the new stuff, you know, the stuff that actually enthuses us, the, the things that we're here in this gallery surrounded by. So uh, it is a sad situation, and I think part of the reason for that, uh, as I've explored in some of my writing, is that artists haven't mobilised. Artists have been disorganised and artists have been very poor advocates for their own interests. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the consequences of that is that when the decisions are made in Canberra or in Spring Street that artists are not at the table, they don't, they don't get a say um, and their interests are often neglected or, or even sometimes held in contempt. You know, there's a, there's a sort of belief that they're just going to do it anyway because that's just what they do. And if we just throw them a few crumbs off the table, then they'll be happy. And you know what? They probably will be happy because uh, the average artist is earning something like $11,000 a year from the creative practice. So it's a very difficult pastime to make a living from. So, you know, um, 
that's the pessimistic side of it, but there is an optimistic side, which I think is that artists are a bit of a sleeping giant, you know, and, and we saw that with the response to George Brandis's cuts to the Australia Council in 2015, which is to, with just a little bit of organisation and campaigning, um, we had quite a lot of political impact. Um, and, and really, you know, I mean, you, know, you can say that, well, you know, what's changed really? Well, we got an arts minister fired, uh, we got tens of millions of dollars returned to the Australia Council, um, and we've fundamentally changed the debate, I think, about cultural policy in Australia. So there are some green shoots, and I think if people are interested in trying to redress the, the power imbalance there, some of the things they can do is to join organisations that advocate for artists. As visual artists, I think you should all be members of NAVA, um, and as creative workers, you should all be members of the Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Um, you know, and, and I'm a member of MIA, and I, and I think it's a flawed union and has tremendous problems, but there's no way that that will change if you're on the outside. So that, that would be my injunction to you as the audience, is to, to get organised. Hear, hear. Um, Definitely uh, in agreement with Ben there about getting involved in the political process, uh, whatever that means to you. Uh, it doesn't need to be, you know, running for politics, but um, creating content that is politically engaging is in itself quite powerful. Um, I guess what I might add in this to, to this discussion is um, something that I do myself when I. Uh, want to engage in an advocacy project and often I think um, it's very easy to be in an echo chamber where one speaks to people who completely agree with you and you think oh there's no reason why people will disagree and um, in the past little while I've been thinking that talking to people who disagree is actually not enough you actually have to talk to people who don't care which um, I've found um, Quite, to be quite a common experience in my labour advocacy. So for me, I'm really passionate about workplace relations and I think it touches everyone's lives. Like, why wouldn't people, you know, think that this is the most important thing in the world? However, um, some of my friends who might work in a different industry actually don't even... It, it's not that they, dis they disagree with my view, it's that they don't even care. Um, they've never really had to think about it. And um, that was a bit of an enlightening moment for me because... Uh, sometimes when policymakers make decisions, they might not necessarily be antagonising a particular community, but they have a lot on their plate. And, um, you know, the, the community legal centres are getting cut. Um, a lot of mental health services are, are often under threat of getting cut, and they're very pressing um, policy issues as well. And so I think it's a crowded space for artists to try and advocate um, for increased support um, and you know how one divides the pie, that is the cultural funding, is a completely different question. But I think um, being engaged in the political process is very important. And um, how artists do that will be up to the individual. Um, but if I could offer a tiny piece of advice, for me it's actually talking to people who don't care about what you care about, which I find would be um, conducive to some insights that may not have cropped up so far. Coming back to the problem of Brandis, I guess. Um, I, just, I guess I just wanted to point out, I think, that why that was such a success was because 
um, it was kind of this useful thing and it was this one thing that everyone could kind of come together and disagree with and a lot of what the problem is with kind of political action as an artist or as a writer is that um, everything's so dispersed and we don't have wages. We, we are subcontractors, we're all, we all have ABNs, we do lots of different little bits of work and so we don't really fit into a traditional union structure. We don't fit into the kind of neoliberal idea of what, what a good worker is and that's why the myth of the lazy artist or the welfare queen just gets pushed on us. It's really easy for people in power to do that. Um, and so I think, you know, being involved in the political process is really important, but part of what's so hard is kind of strategizing into something that we don't really fit into. We drive the value of property up. That is obvious when it comes to, you know, renewal projects. We are an important part of the gentrification process, but we don't, you know, we still, we still don't fit inside that. And I guess I can't answer those questions, even though I am constantly searching for answers. <laughs> I wonder if, like, um, trying to, yeah, I think it's, a, like, trying to change the conversation a little bit. So, for the last, I think it's been, like, you know, the last 30, 40 years that culture has, it's been geared towards outcomes, especially when it comes to funding. Um, so, it's all about outcomes. Like, you, if you've ever filled in a funding application, whether it's as an individual artist, and I completely agree that individual artists get nowhere near enough funding, but, or whether it's a big organisation, it's all about outcomes, often economic ones, and how you can demonstrate them. And, but we need to advocate for the importance of culture in and of itself, and the way, and the contribution it has to society, which, you know, it was, was actually a bigger part of our... Western cultural understanding prior to kind of, you know, the big wars and the, the changes of the 50s and 60s, culture was understood more broadly to be an important part of society and that has changed dramatically and, um, and I, you know, and part of giving funding to artists as individuals as opposed to the large organisations and the structure is, is changing, yeah, breaking out of that and creating a new conversation um, because this, while funding is all channeled through the large institutions and the large structures, who is going to change that conversation? The, 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 you know, the dialogue is going to be the same and the discourse is going to be the same because large organisations and institutions have an invested interest in maintaining the status quo. You know, the major performing arts companies who never get their funding cut and have not really shown leadership on, on behalf of the broader arts community because they've got no real reason to... So I wonder if it's about, and I, I, again, I don't have any answers either. <laughs> and um, I come from a strong union background and a, a member of the MEAA and think that it's a, unions, it, it's important to advocate, uh, to be part of, sorry, your advocacy body. But I also wonder how, um, if anyone, I guess, is shaped to change those conversations, surely it's artists. Surely we are able to um, do that and, and, and do it collectively and and do it collectively to, to communicate to the broader society our value, yeah. Well, I'm inspired, that's great, <laughs> that's, you know. Um, and so maybe then, you know, in, a, in that questioning mode, maybe it's time for some questions in a way. Um, and I, I guess I'm, yeah, hello, hello. And so, no, that's great, because I think I've got to do the job. Oh, do I? No? Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm here um, 
on behalf of King's Artists Run Initiative, which, like Blindside, happy to pronounce that we will be celebrating 15 years in Melbourne next year, which shows the resilience and the self-sufficiency of some of the artists in Melbourne. Um, I have a question, though, which is my own question. I won't um, drag my committee into this. And uh, we've kind of had a conversation this evening around an us and them kind of idea, which is us in the arts and them who don't give a shit about it have the power and have the money. And I think that there's like another kind of conversation that is happening actually within the arts, which is about a financial kind of issue, which is how do we actually address the imbalance of the volume of funding and positions and security that go towards arts administration versus what's happening for artists who are actually the producers and contributors there. So I wonder what your vision is for that or your ambitions are or your solutions or your suggestions or whether or not you think that's even valid. It may not be the case. by saying that I'm guilty of this in a way, an artist who, uh, who's practically... Well, that's right, no, but this is the thing, this is, I pretend to... You know, I guess I locate myself as an artist, but in a sense, I'm the worst case, a white guy who clawed his way to a director position in a gallery that's now paid uh, slightly, a little bit. But, you know, so I'm, I'm worst case of that, but I think it's probably um, uh, my belief in that that position should be paid and that should be artist positions. But um, it's, it's a problem that perhaps others can comment on as well. Um, the discrepancy is there. I think it's especially there on the larger end. I've always worked in the very small artist organisations and I am both an artist and writer and an arts administrator, I guess. Um, in very small organisations, like the one I work with, I find that it's often one and the same. So I, like the artists that I work with, I am also underpaid and doing a lot of volunteer time. Um, and, and that's often not quite understood um, on the smaller end of the scale, but of, co of course on the larger end of the scale, there is a huge discrepancy. Um, I'm not sure that I have a solution for it other than I think that it's about looking at the funding structures and what Ben mentioned before about what 1% of funding going directly to artists and looking at changing those structures more broadly, both from within and without, I guess. I guess there's also discrepancy, you know, as we saw with the, the creation of Brandis's Catalyst Fund, where the major, you know, it was the major performing arts organisations, they got none of their funding cut. Um, so it all came from the small, you know, the small end of the sector. Um, so I guess it's a, that discrepancy ex seems to exist on multiple levels. Um, it, I guess it's probably a, maybe a, broader paradigm for the inequality in society. I don't know, that's getting a bit esoteric, but um, yeah, I don't really have a solution. That was just my... I do have a solution. You've got to make it unpopular. You've got to get in their faces. You've got to make it a big problem when the opera, the orchestras, the big institutions, the big galleries get funding year in, year out, and they don't employ artists on fellowships, and they don't do anything very progressive 
and they don't even advocate for the interests of the little guys when the little guys get their funding cut. You know, it's got to be political because the current status quo is all in their favour. So the only way that you can change that is to knock over the table and upend the status quo. You know, Michael Brand, the director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, has a salary of half a million dollars, okay? That is inequality right there, in a nutshell, in one guy, okay? Who sets his salary? Well, the chair of the Art Gallery of New South Wales is a Lowy, okay? All right, the Skion of the Lowy family, you know, is some of the richest guys in the country. The boards of these big institutions are run by really rich, powerful people. They don't care about you. They see you as little insects, basically. Um, you know, the great unwashed kind of... Uh, it's, they're uncomfortable that you even exist, I have to say, having met some of them. Um, so until you can mount a political argument against some of these big institutions and get in the faces of some of these rich and powerful people who control the boards of these institutions. I'll give you another example. Uh, former chair of the Sydney Theatre Company, Ian Narev of the Commonwealth Bank. You know, that wonderful ethical institution so famous throughout the land for its above-board dealings. Uh, these are some of the people in charge of our key cultural institutions, okay? They're not good guys. They're pretty ruthless individuals. So, you know, be, a, be appraised of the power structures against which you are up. Uh, well, that was a bit Yoda-like, wasn't it? But you know what I mean. Yeah. I, would, I would just say also that, that I guess one of the actions that one can do um, is that you can use the power to uh, affect change or you can... and so. I guess one of the points, the reason why I was interested in convening your conference was that there was a moment where I was suddenly paid um, and that that wasn't going to last. And I got the sense that, you know, this was a kind of a position that wasn't common to, to my fellows in the, in the scene um, and uh, that a lot of spaces were doing this uh, completely no, with no funding and no pay and uh, doing it, you know, um, for the belief of it. Uh, and uh, so, so there was this moment where you can if you can work out how to, to structure things so that you have a stable um, organisation or you have a stable entity, you know, that's quite a, that can be quite a powerful activist force. Um, and I guess some of these conversations are about how to reorientate some of these passive organisations into, into initiating, you know, maybe, uh, maybe change in ways that is unique to them, but, um, uh, you know, uh, it becomes these kind of active forces. And that's how you can kind of, you know, in some ways, maybe that's just to help me sleep at night, but, you know, there's kind of a, you know, there are these ways that one can use these powers for, for good when you get them. Um, so that's just one response from me. Oh, I'll stand up. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophie, and I'm the gallery manager at 7th, and I just want to particularly support Shannon on this view because as one of the first people that we dialogued about all conference with, um, it was particularly exciting for me um, struggling along in an all-voluntary organisation, except for me, who's the only paid staff member. Um, and we had coffee um, in Gertrude Street, and we talked about the woes of how difficult it was for our own long-term sustainability as an organisation with such little resources. So much of the burden comes to the singular or couple of people in the organisation to continue important things that kind of get pushed by the wayside, which is corporate knowledge, 
um, which is engagement in, this, in what's happening in the organisation over a long-term period. The problem with volunteer organisations is you don't get longevity. So it's when everyone's coming and going, it's really difficult to stick to a plan. Now we're in our 18th year in 7th, um, and I can tell you it's been always a struggle with the voluntary thing. We managed to secure a bit of funding, which was very exciting for us for the first time, um, was um, consecutive funding for three years to, man to increase the manager's wage from six hours to 10 hours, um, which was very exciting for me, um, even though I work usually about three to four days a week. Um, and it's a constant problem because we haven't been able to lower artist fees um, and even though the manager's wages increased slightly, there's been a bit of, as an artist-run body, there has been discussion about that. Now, for me and for, I know for Shannon and for us that work on the other side of that, we understand that it is better for the organisation to have some support to provide a better experience for the artists exhibiting. So I know that we can provide a better experience for the artists as their professional outcomes with more support in the organisation. Now, ideally, we would get a, a massive amount of funding and we could completely cut artist, run, you know, artist fees, and that would be ideal. But it is, it is not necessarily, we're not necessarily devils in this situation, which is what I wanted to counter to that point is that there is actually a power in having people that need, that want to stay a little bit longer so that you can continue the good work of the organisation. And that is a constant problem for us small to medium organisations. So, yeah. How long do we have for questions, I should say? Are we... Sure. Is there any other questions for the panel? Are they there? Thank you. Hi, my name is Guy Moore. I'm from the University of Melbourne. Um, I'm recent, I've recently been doing some research into the Featured Artists Coalition in the UK, which is uh, a popular music or contemporary music-based organisation. And I, I think it, seem, it seems to me that because popular music can be lent to mass production, they've got a certain economic weight behind that particular organisation, but they claim to be at the, the centre of the international artists' organisation. And I'm just wondering how your work intersects with that notion of the Featured Artist Coalition in the sense that in the UK they've actually been able to sit on the board of U Music UK and lobby government alongside uh, record labels, song publishers, um, and so on and so forth. So. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if you have any knowledge of any intersections with such an organisation. Can you maybe just give us a little bit more info about what they do? Because I don't think many Australians would be aware of their work, Guy. Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, me the membership constitutes um, people like Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, um, one of the members of Pink Floyd. Um, so sort of high-profile featured artists um, from the UK. And they... Uh, get together. Uh, artist managers aren't eligible to be members um, because most of the time artist managers and artist interests do co-align, but there's 10% of that time when they don't, i.e. when they're negotiating their management agreement. Uh, and so this organisation uh, was set up to basically uh, collectively uh, negotiate with iTunes, with Amazon, with Universal Music Group to be able to um, advocate genuinely advocate um, on behalf of what they call featured artists, um, i.e. original music producing artists. Um, so, and it doesn't seem to have been taken up here as, a, as an organisation, um, although the Music Managers Forum is here. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering if there's any knowledge of, of that and 
as maybe a model? <laughs> I'm going to jump in there. Um, I think that it's really, I think that it's hard to draw a comparison to um, the rock stars and us. Um, we're not Radiohead and we don't sell records. So we don't have, we don't have that economic capital to bargain with. We can't come to the table with that. And that's kind of what I was kind of trying to get at before, I think, when I was talking about not being able to fit into a union structure. Um, and so I guess it's also kind of relevant to the idea of performing arts organisations getting lots of funding. They have a box office sale. It's very difficult for a visual arts um, organisation or a gallery to charge people to come and see an exhibition. And so we really lose that. We, we lose that wager. We can't come to the table with that. And when we're living in a kind of landscape of money, when we're living in a neoliberal landscape, it really, that pushes us back quite far. And I don't think... It's, I suppose there's also, I mean, this, this sometimes, I mean, again, it's not something necessarily that I, I um, comment on too much, other than you could, you, could, you could make up something like that in terms of like some powerful, uh, powerful arts giants in Australia uh, could come together and, 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 and provide a kind of a, a united lobby, uh, you know, these people who are very close to kind of power, they kind of, yeah. their, their work is gargantuan in terms of their uh, profile, they could well, well do some of these things. I mean, sometimes you find these people sitting on peer groups and, and uh, influencing and being asked by council to kind of come and, you know, you get a sense that there's people in rooms giving certain opinions because of their reputations. And I mean, uh, for me, there's kind of a, a sense that, well, I, I suppose that, that could well happen. I mean, maybe it's done in this kind of loose, informal ways or in, back, in, in kind of schmoozing and at dinners and you have people kind of with a certain um, uh, um, maybe sense of, of what they think is, uh, is, is a good thing. But it, it generally is from their lived experience. And, and I think that, as, as we've talked about, there are problematic aspects of who's reached those kind of mega status points, you know, your kind of equivalent to your Pink Floyds or your others, and, and what they're, what kind of, um, uh, because it, maybe it's because of the, the kind of fluidity of what they would be lobbying for in their opinions, it might be, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit unti more untidy, I think, in terms of some of these things. Ben, do you have any but opinions? But I guess on? the positive yeah. thing with that kind of strategy is that kind of, um, that infiltration, mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that is a good strategy, so... Do you have any knowledge of this model? Yeah, um, I, I do think there are some positive models. I mean, I agree that you can't necessarily just depend on the, on the rock stars, you know, to, to come through for the rest of us. I mean, we used to have a rock star for the arts minister, right? And he, he didn't really do that much. So, um, you know, that, that was a cautionary tale, I thought, uh, of the, the failure of a prominent artist to do much for the arts when he had the power. Uh, but anyway, um, look, one counterexample I'd point out is simply the SLAM, the Save Live Music Rally, which was tremendously successful in rolling back the Melbourne licensing laws, um, and they mounted a tremendously effective campaign. Uh, really, I mean, I think you have Helen and Quincy to thank for that. I mean, really, it was two people who were just very smart and very savvy in the way that they were able to use rock stars. They were absolutely, um, they were wise to the, uh, to the resources of, you know, cultural capital that this sector has, okay? We don't necessarily have a lot of money, but we have fame. Um, and we have a lot of people um, who 
who have a lot of fans, you know. So the Slam Rally was tremendously effective um, in making music an election issue, okay? And, and by doing that, you know, I don't know who was at that rally. I mean, but there was 20,000 of us on Burke Street at that rally in 2010. It was a pretty impressive moment. Uh, and, you know, they were able to get significant policy change as a result of harnessing those energies. Would you say that there's, um, I mean, again, going on from this notion of using kind of fame as a, as a lobbying point, I guess, was that, the, I mean, the, the biggest political action I've seen in my, my time in the arts was still the Biennale um, action, where I guess they used that kind of focal moment, that point of fame, the, the shame that came with kind of, you know, they sort of put onto people. Do you, do you see any resonances there in terms of what you're talking about in relation to the music? Uh, leveraging that moment of fame and attention and profile? I mean, I, I, the artists who boycotted uh, the Sydney Biennale were not that famous. Uh, I think what that showed to me was the power of courage, of moral courage, that those artists were prepared to take a stand and it was amazing how quickly just a little bit of courage caught on. And I think in, in Australian society where we're actually hungry for our leaders to take a stand on these issues, many of which to us um, we feel deeply ashamed about. You know, I think that there is an opportunity for artists to lead and I think that the Biennale was a really fascinating moment in Australian cultural history. Part of the problem is that uh, funding cuts have affected, as you've clearly pointed out, the, mi the mid-range and, and, and the small to medium sector in, in every art form. And what that has meant has been that the co connectivity between the arts community and, and, and the broader community has been broken down. And so one of the problems we have in terms of convincing the public that they need art is that they don't know what it is a lot of the time. And we've got a generation now of people who who don't know what it is. Um, and I think it's, oh, it's um, to say that it used to be great in this country is, is actually not true. It, was, it used to be a lot worse and then it got good for a while and now it's got bad again. Um, but, and it was good for a blink, believe me. Um, but we seem to be wanting to have this dialogue on their terms. We seem to be wanting to try and argue them with their language, language that makes no sense in the creative sphere. Um, what, wh why do we have a problem with, for example, the last round of Creative Victoria grants, there was $100,000 that was allocated to the development of new new theatre across, across the state. There was 100000 for visual arts, 100000 for I think literature, yet there was $107 million that went to infrastructure as part of the budget surplus. Why aren't we collectively uh, boycotting Arts Victoria, for example? Well, so, so for, I guess from my point of view, I, I guess I'm, uh, there is a kind of a... Um, I guess it is a kind of a, 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 we're relatively compromised from my point of view in terms of how um, uh, we've been supported and what that means for, and I guess this is just a broader question about how organisations like the one that we've built over time uh, find themselves in compromised positions with uh, 
both government funding bodies, um, whereby there is a, a gratitude and kind of an under, and, and then a, a kind of a maybe a passivity around how you you act in that situation. Part of and that response, it also is, I guess there was a sense that that wasn't how many people, in, at least in, in my group, did things. You know, going to protests uh, and meetings that NAVA organised and that Arts Peak organised around uh, the federal funding changes. You know, there was very few visual arts people sitting around. There's lots of theatre people. Um, very, very outgoing kind of folks uh, there, um, and uh, I think one of the things that I understood was that that wasn't necessarily how people were comfortable in, in acting. So, one of the ways that that we thought to tease out a certain sort of amount of of advocacy and lobbying was through, um, at least through a conference, was through a, a, another sort of um, process: one of of research, one of education, one of assembling material and putting forward a case that maybe was maybe felt a little bit more comfortable. Now, I guess it depends. We're a group of very diverse organisations and these speakers sitting around are not necessarily, um, uh, uh, you know, they're not, they're not all, com this is not a necessarily a representative of an all conference panel. It's something that we do through initiating conversations and we hope that that impacts advocacy in a certain way, but it may not be in, a, in an obvious way of, the, of say, say, a boycott or other things. That's not our role necessarily. So, and I wonder if that's, that's I don't know whether that's true for others, but it seemed like that was a way to kind of encourage people to become activists without requiring them to perhaps adopt uh, uh, modes of activism that they weren't comfortable with or that, that in fact they wouldn't sustain either. So that, that would be my response. Plus maybe they'd just give more money to the opera. <laughs> I mean, I could ask you, sir, have you talked to Minister Foley? I mean, have you put your money where your mouth is? Yes, yes, I know, I know. No one can hear this, so... Yeah, I think um, we might actually leave it here, if that's okay, and I'll just invite you to, um, you know, talk amongst yourselves here and, and continue the discussion. Yeah. I just want to thank, I guess it, one of the things that, that we've talked about around is, is, you know, we've talked about individuals, we've talked about organisations, we've talked about, and I just want to thank ACA for hosting both the exhibition as well, which allows us to bring up some of these conversations and also allows people to kind of, you know, for us to, to present this talk here was a really great way to kind of, uh, I guess, start you know, these other, uh, this other facet of what somewhere, something like all conference can do. And I just want to thank also the, the speakers who've been very kind with their time tonight and uh, their big brains as well. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Aka. I'll just interject and say we should all also have a huge thank you for Shannon who organised this this evening but also dedicates a huge amount of time and work advocating um, through all conference but also through his work. So we should say thank you to Shannon. Thank you.